It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for August 9th, 2018, the War on Your Mind edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. And John Dickerson is on vacation. But boy, oh boy, is this long overdue. We have finally on the Gap Fest, I don't know how long it has been that we want to do this. It's been a really long time. Is Ben Wittes the empresario behind the wonderful site Empire Lawfare. Hello, Ben. Hey, I'm going to do my best John Dickerson imitation. Uh, that If that was it, it's, not, <laughs> it's really bad. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I was going to, you know, talk about the historic presidency, uh, but no, I'll just be me. Um, so I'm excited because in Ben and in Emily, I feel like we can have a great uh competition doesn't have to be a competition between the i think of you the two of you as the people who are best able to explain legal concepts to lay audience in, incisively and you each do it so brilliantly and in a different style you have a different approach right emily does it. emily's style is knowing what she's talking about and actually reading the cases and and mine is is winging it um, oh, that, that not, is not true at all. I think of you as firmly grounded in the facts, Ben Wittes. Firm, fir- firmly grounded in something, I suppose. <laughs> we will we'll find out at the end of the show. People can people can uh, pass judgment after they've heard Ben on this week's Gabfest, the latest in the Manafort trial and the Mueller investigation. Then, yet another, even more appalling immigration proposal oozes out of the Trump White House. We will talk about it. And then Alex Jones was banned this week from a couple or a bunch of social platforms. Emily and Ben will explain to me how I am supposed to think about that. I am really confounded and confused and need help. Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. And before we really get started on the show, we have two important announcements. First of all, our brilliant researcher, Izzy Road, is moving on to his next life chapter, which is really sad for us, but great for Izzy. So tragic, we, tragic for us. It's Go not on. tragic. It's not tragic. It's we want people to grow up and move on. And if he's doing that. So uh, so it means we're excited to hire a new researcher. And this is a halftime job. It is respectably paid. It is preferably in D.C. It's possibly in New York or New Haven. But you will use your research skills to do research for us. You will monitor and contribute on social media to this GabFest social media channels and help us generally put together this show. Audio skills are a plus, but they are not necessary. So please email a resume and a cover letter about why you'd be great at this to gabfest at slate.com and send it by August 16th. Thank you so much for that. We look forward to hearing from you and getting a great new candidate. This has been a position which has been a real, what's the right word, leap vaulting point, something, the thing you leap off of for people to great new jobs. So we'd love to uh, start working with you. Second announcement, we um, are going to the Texas Tribune Festival for a live podcast experience called Slate Day, 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 in which the Gab Fest, the Trump cast, Amicus, 
El Gabfest and the Gist will all be doing live shows in Austin during the Texas Tribune Festival. And we're also going to have a cocktail party there. You can buy exclusive merchandise at the Slate Day pop-up shop. It's going to be at the Capitol Factory in downtown Austin on Saturday, September 29th. It's an intimate ven- venue, limited seating. So tickets are going very, very fast. So you should get yours today. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets and information. And we're going to have a special guest, DeRay McKesson, who is the civil rights activist and podcaster, is going to be with us. So that is going to be really fun for our show. So again, go to slate.com slash live to find out more and get tickets. So much Russia, Mueller, Manafort, Giuliani news this week. The Manafort trial raced forward, really went very quickly forward, really, really fast. In It's Alexander. the Eastern District of Virginia. Uh, Rick Gates testified to truly epic lying and tax evasion and all sorts of other misbehavior by his former boss and even more epic lying and embezzlement and adultery by himself. Man, these are these are a real pair, these two. Meanwhile, the president admitted by tweet that the Trump Tower meeting's purpose was to gather political dirt, which is something that had long been denied or hidden, and that perhaps added to legal jeopardy for Donald Trump Jr. Meanwhile, Robert Mueller and Rudy Giuliani sparred over the possible terms of a Donald Trump interview with the president's legal team publicly rejecting the notion that the president would answer questions about obstruction of justice. There are lots and lots of threads. So, um, Ben, let us start with Trump rather than with Manafort. What what does it matter? Let me ask it a different way. What crime could Donald Trump or Donald Trump Jr. have committed during the Trump Tower meeting or in the what they said about it or in the preparation for it? Well, so Donald Trump Jr. has potentially more obvious exposure there, which is to say, oh, look, Donald Trump Sr. didn't participate in the meeting. And it's not entirely clear that he knew about it at the time, which he denies, although there is uh, some reason to be concerned about the integrity of the denial. Uh, Donald Trump Jr., by contrast, participated in the meeting, affirmatively expressed enthusiasm about getting the promised dirt. And so to the extent that you believe that 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 meeting involved transactions that could be regarded as conspiracies or campaign finance violations or uh, any number of other uh, uh, things, you know, he's directly involved in it. Um, The exposure associated with Donald Trump Sr., I think probably more has to do either if it turned out he in fact knew about it at the time or uh, the activity he engaged in on Air Force One after it emerged where he helped or crafted the statement that his son ended up issuing uh, is clearly under scrutiny as reflects his state of mind with respect to obstruction of justice and that sort of thing. Uh, but I think he does have a little bit more removal from the meeting itself. What What's so, uh, what's so wrong or what is wrong about meeting with somebody who is offering damaging information about your opponent if that person is a agent of a foreign government? Well... If they're just merely offering and nothing directly comes of it. Okay. Well, so the, so the first thing is if you're merely offering something that would be illegal, 
if it happened and you kind of agree to do it, right? And you get together, you're, you're kind of arguably in conspiracy land to commit that underlying offense. That raises the question of whether the underlying activity, if it had been consummated, would in fact be legal, right? Or illegal. And that's a complicated question. Bob Mueller has issued two indictments, one on the social media manipulation side, the, the so-called IRA indictment, and the other, the hacking indictment, which both allege conspiracies on the Russian side of the operation. And so presumably, Bob Mueller believes that somebody who participated on the American side in one of those two conspiracies would be guilty of a crime. That raises the question of whether any construction of the facts associated with this meeting could be construed reasonably, much less proven beyond a reasonable doubt to have been an American side engagement in either of those conspiracies. And we simply don't have enough facts at this point to assess that question. Emily, one of the other fronts this week was this the back and forth between Giuliani and Mueller, uh, some of which was the, the, the Giuliani part of it was waged uh, publicly. Mueller's team, as, as ever, was silent. So we have no idea what they're actually saying or doing. But Giuliani um, and, and another presidential attorney, Jay Sekulow, were saying that it, the president would not answer questions about obstruction of justice. What, what is their case for him not to answer those questions? And, and what, why are they saying that publicly? I don't think there's much of a case for him not to answer, although it is unresolved. You know, the Supreme Court, while the precedent that does exist from the Nixon era suggests that the president should have to answer those questions, we've never faced this question directly because the Nixon era case is about turning over tapes, not um, forcing a president to testify under oath. So I think that the public waging of this campaign is, first of all, super unskillful and mostly just like throwing up a lot of smoke and mirrors. Um, I don't think they have any intention of letting Trump answer questions because once that starts, they'll lose control. But I think periodically they try to suggest that maybe they're sort of still open to this, that they're negotiating, and it's a way of making it seem like um, this is still somewhat possible, um, I guess. I don't know. Ben, what's your theory for why this keeps coming up? Is this just like Giuliani and Sekula going on television? Uh, or do you think there's something more strategic about it? I don't believe the president's lawyers are behaving strategically, just as I don't believe the president is behaving strategically. I think they're all uh, basically flailing. I do think Mueller is behaving strategically. And you know, I, th I think, and I have no evidence of this beyond what is visible to the public, is that, you know, Mueller made a decision that he was going to seek a voluntary interview. He was going to give them every opportunity to conduct an interview on a voluntary basis. And he has played his cards very close to his vest about whether he would or would not issue a subpoena if they didn't agree to that. And I think the reason for that is that, as you said before, the law is probably but not certainly here on his side. And so there are it, it is a, a difficult litigation for him to do. And if he can get a 
an agreement from the president to sit for the interview uh, voluntarily. It is highly desirable to do it that way. It is also desirable if you were going to have to litigate to be able to show the court that you went through this elaborately deferential process of giving them the chance to come in and you did these negotiations. The president's counsel seems to enjoy talking about all this stuff in public and doing it in public. And so at every stage, this negotiation is being, uh, you know, kind of caricatured by Rudy Giuliani to anybody who will take the time to call him or listen to him. Um, but I think at this point, with given what happened this week, uh, which is that the, you know, the president's lawyers, you know, rejected the latest offer from Mueller, I would think that if Mueller is going to issue the subpoena at this point, he will do it relatively quickly, particularly because the window before the election period is going to close, you know, sort of around Labor Day. And so if you're going to have that litigation, you're going to want to initiate it relatively soon. I Did you guys read that? What I thought was an interesting piece by Andrew McCarthy in the National Review, it made two points that I thought were, I found persuasive, actually, about Giuliani and Seculo's strategy. And I agree with you, Ben. I mean, to ascribe to ascribe strategy to Giuliani and Trump seems like a mistake. They've, I mean, certainly Trump has never demonstrated any any grasp of the long game or desire for the long game. But I would say, like, that maybe this is instinctive. What they're doing is that there's a, I think, the Trump team realizes there will never be a normal criminal prosecution of the president. That is not going to happen. The only thing that could happen is an impeachment case against him. And therefore, the most important thing they can do is win in public opinion. And they don't even have to win. They just have to make there be enough doubt and enough uh, people upset. And they pointed, McCarthy pointed to interesting poll numbers that say, I think now 45% of people think the Mueller investigation is, I can't remember exactly what the characterization is, but gone on too long, wrong, bad, up from 31% a few months ago. The longer this thing... Yeah, that's the strategy, right? Yeah, the it's not a legal strategy. Right. The longer it drags out, the lower the support it is, the more the public is sort of sick of it, and the less likely you are to to suffer an impeachment or to, 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 uh, to lose your presidency over it. And so could that be the strategy? Either one of... I don't know if either of you think that's right. I think that is right, but it's a desperate strategy because it depends on the facts not being damning enough to just like swamp all of the all of that. Right. I mean, it's an effort to discredit the investigation or just confuse everyone and make everyone tired of it and make everyone think it's like as up for grabs in terms of what's true and not true as any other partisan battle. Um and again, if you go back to Nixon and you think about the poll numbers showing when Republican voters lost faith in Nixon, it was late on and it took a lot of – it took basically like the smoking gun tape for that to happen. And so it seems like if there is a strategy, it's not really a legal one. It's betting on the idea that there won't be that kind of smoking gun evidence and that without it – um, a lot of people just won't be persuaded. They won't believe what Mueller has to say because Trump has been, you know, calling the investigation 13 or 17 angry Democrats for all these months, even though, of course, that's not true. So I, I agree that that is to the extent there is a strategy, what the strategy is. And I think Andy's uh, argument that this was that this is the sort of Bill Clinton slime Ken Starr 
uh, approach for designed, redesigned for a social media age is a perceptive point. That said, uh, I don't think it's going to work here. And the reason is twofold. Uh, the first is, as Emily says, that, you know, we should expect the facts when they emerge to be really bad. And the thing about the Bill Clinton strategy is that we knew the facts from the very beginning. The facts were that he had had sex with an intern, coached her to lie, lied himself, coached some other, you know, encouraged some other people to lie. And what the Star Report did is it fleshed out those basic facts in excruciating detail. There wasn't anything profoundly new in the Star Report. The second feature of Ken was that Ken Starr himself had behaved in a way that a lot of people rightly or wrongly really saw as a, you know, that of a sort of partisan warrior. Uh, now, I actually think that was, that's a, a little bit unfair to, to Star, but it is the way that it was understood by a lot of people from even before when the Lewinsky scandal broke. Uh, Bob Mueller has two things going for him here that, uh, you know, Star did not. The first is that he actually does have an impeccably above politics history. And to the extent there's a party valence at all to his history, it's not a 17 angry Democrats valence. And people actually, at least in 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 a lot of circles really do understand that and so he's not it's going it's hard to create a Ken Starr figure out of Bob Mueller the second is i believe that the facts will at the end of the day be new and be devastating and that that kind of shock and awe aspect of it, which is a feature of the IRA indictment, is a feature of the hacking indictment, and is a feature when he charged Paul, uh, George Papadopoulos and got a plea from Papadopoulos was a feature of that. When he speaks, he is generally saying something new. Well, so I actually, that brings me to a question which I've been wondering about for weeks, which is that the, essentially the, the only incident that people have focused on regarding Trump himself and and the intimate circle is this Trump Tower meeting. Like that's the thing that has come up over and over again. It's a thing that Trump has been tweeting about. It's been mentioned by tons and tons of people as the possible uh, point of conspiracy, collusion, campaign finance violations. And so, you know, that's a bad that's a certainly a bad, bad look. It's a that meeting seems really bad. But if that's the only thing out there and that's the only thing we know about, that would be very weak. So so your assumption is there's some huge other set of of facts, potentially, that we don't know about at all. Well, so the nature of facts you don't know about them is that you don't know about them. And so I can't I can't tell you what they are. But let me let me tell you why I believe that. <laughs> um, so first of all, there's two sets of issues with Trump, right? One is his uh, involvement in the underlying activity that people call collusion, right? Russia did this stuff in support of him during our election. Did he have any role, passive, active, tacit in that? And embedded in that is the set of questions, you know, does Russia have anything on him, right? So like, let's leave aside and just say there are unknown unknowns in that. And, and I don't know what they are. But there is another constellation of activity that involves Trump, and it's Trump's interactions with law enforcement in the investigation of those other things. And Trump um, 
we know a lot about that, and it's an ugly, ugly fact pattern. Now, whether it's a criminal fact pattern, different question, very complicated question, it's an ugly fact pattern. It is very clear that there's more to that fact pattern than is public. And we know that because we know there's a Bedminster memo, for example, the memo that Trump dictated to Stephen Miller about firing Jim Comey that was so bad that Rod Rosenstein replaced it with his own memo, right? We know there's a giant set of intra-White House communications around interactions with law enforcement that almost led Don McGahn to resign at one point. There was an effort to fire Mueller. There's whatever back and forth happen in connection with these tweets. All of this stuff is in Mueller's hands. And we know that because the president's lawyers didn't assert any privileges about this material. And so I assume that when all of this stuff comes out, it's going to be extremely damaging to Trump. Emily, for last part of this segment, let's let's go to Ale- a courthouse in Alexandria, Virginia, where Rick Gates testified this week. You sound like a newscaster. I, know. I was doing it intentionally. I should be like standing outside in the hot it's sun. It's true. It's hot. You would be like, it's very hot out here, but it was even hotter in the Judge Ellis's courtroom today. <laughs> As longtime Paul Manafort Especially associate Rick Gates took the stand best, for a third day of testimony. Best headline of the week, though, was exactly. from The Onion, which reported that uh, dozens of high-end Persian rugs turned out in support of Paul Manafort. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's excellent. Uh, I love it. Um, so, Emily, what do you what do you make of uh, the Paul Manafort's lawyers? Apparently, quite successful efforts to paint Rick Gates as a as a person without uh, morality, uh, an embezzler, Scruples. A, an adulterer, a sleazeball of the highest order. Yeah, man, what a bunch of lowlifes. I mean, <laughs> I guess I just feel like I can't, look. I mean, juries are confounding creatures. They can do mysterious things. However, there is so much documentary evidence against Paul Manafort. And the fact that Rick Gates is a scoundrel just suggests to me, like looking at that, all those documents, reading about them, that, you know, one scoundrel hired another scoundrel and they worked together for a long time and they, you know, did their uh, nefarious (laughs) bank and tax fraud together. Um, I guess it's possible the jury could conclude that this is all like a concoction of Rick Gates to get revenge, and he did it without Manafort's knowledge. But they'd really have to um, ignore kind of willfully a lot of other evidence. And, you know, Judge Ellis is being a jerk. Like, he just seems like a really tyrannical judge. And and there is a discussion to be had about judges and how they can get to be, you know, petty tyrants in their courtrooms and just upbraid people. It, look, it's fine for him to, you know, run the courtroom, to tightly control the evidence, um, to direct what's happening, to make sure the prosecution isn't um, gratuitously making the jury listen to lots of descriptions of, like, what the gazebo looked like that was built or what whatever. But he's just being a jerk. Um, I don't know how much it's really going to matter in the end, though. And when I was talking to other lawyers who've tried cases in front of him or, you know, know his work, they've said, look, like, 
one thing is he is protecting the record from an easy appeal by the defense because he's being tough on the prosecution. And also, in the end, he is a pretty tough sentencer. So, you know, it may be that this is um, a performance that um, once the prosecution kind of makes it through and and if the jury convicts, then, you know, Judge Ellis's sort of theatrics are just going to, like, recede as one moment in this soap opera that, you know, doesn't really play a definitive role. I also think uh, it is important to keep in mind here that Ellis's being tough on the prosecution was not, is not limited to the conduct of the trial. He famously pre-trial had this, uh, you know, interaction where he where he really grilled uh, Mueller's people about the propriety of Mueller's appointment. Uh, only then to turn around and write a long opinion saying that there was nothing legally or constitutionally deficient about Mueller's appointment. Now, that opinion contains some sort of odd rhetoric that reflects his anxieties about the investigation, which I think are real. But he did, at the end of the day, kind of follow follow the law on this stuff. And so I, I do think it's probably a lot of theatrics, particularly in light of the a uh, rather extraordinary volume of evidence that Manafort was not being an up-and-up citizen and paying his taxes. So here's my question about this trial. The thing I don't understand is why Paul Manafort hasn't made a deal. It doesn't make sense to me. I can't, like, it's not, it doesn't seem rational. It seems like when you have a mountain of evidence against you and the government wants you to flip, you flip. And I... I am. I find that to be the mystery of the entire proceeding, and I wonder what you guys think about it. I got nothing for you on that. It's irrational. There are only a very limited number of explanations that aren't just he's behaving irrationally. One of them is that perhaps he doesn't have much to say in terms of implicating others, and therefore he knows that his testimony it would not be of particular value. Another possibility is that uh, I suppose that the uh, special counsel's office hasn't offered him anything that's attractive, Um, but I think it's completely mystifying. And if both of those explanations sound weak and improbable, it's because I think both of them are pretty weak and improbable. But but why isn't the explanation that he thinks he might be able to get off just by with the defense that he's carrying out? And if he doesn't, he's pretty sure that the president will pardon him. So one thing about the pardon is that um, it is entirely possible that Mueller's team has made sure that there are charges and criminal counts that could be brought in state court, right? They didn't have to put everything on the table. They can hold back some facts um, and evidence so so that Manafort knows that, you know, even if he gets a pardon, um, the New York a district attorney or the attorney general of New York could bring a prosecution against him. I I would imagine there is some of that going on here. The whole thing is mystifying. One other mystifying aspect of it is why Mueller is holding on to this case. So with all the other matters that are uh, sort of ancillary to the core collusion obstruction investigation, Mueller has... Uh, pointedly offloaded cases on other offices. The Southern District of New York got the Cohen case. They were just reporting that he also referred to the SDNY 
you know, a bunch of lobbyists uh, who worked with Manafort, but he's hung on to the Manafort case, even though it is not, uh, you know, it is a little bit off the beaten path of the investigation of Russian intervention in the campaign. And one really interesting question is why, and whether that's because he thinks uh, Manafort has some significant contribution to make, or whether it's just kind of a legacy thing of, of the way Rod Rosenstein wrote his appointment letter. All right. Undoubtedly, there will be a lot more of this. So we expect to talk about it more in future weeks. You both did a really good job being legally explanatory, each of you in your own special way. And didn't I sound exactly like John Dickerson? <laughs> Not at all. This episode of The GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, or has a great deal for Mother's Day, listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This week in Wicked Trump Administration Policy Ideas, we bring you the appalling Stephen Miller, hater of immigrants, lover of what he likes to call immigration reform, floating a proposal that would make it much harder for legal immigrants to become citizens of the United States. Under a proposal described this week, the administration would change the definition of what's called, what is it, public charge? Is that right? Is that what it is, the term? Something public like charge um, when determining uh, who gets to become a citizen so or, and even to stay in the country. So it's now harder to become a citizen if you're a legal permanent resident, if you're a green card holder if you are dependent on cash benefits provided by the state. And so we've said that if you are dependent on cash benefits provided by the state, you are somebody who may become dependent on the government in general. We're not sure we want you to be a citizen. So under the proposal the Trump administration is floating, which would require no congressional action, people who use Medicaid, food stamps, children's health insurance program, Obamacare subsidies, who even enrolled their children in preschool, even if their children themselves were U.S. citizens, would be penalized and would find it harder, if not impossible, to become citizens. It may affect as many as 20 million people who are here legally. And the purpose is clearly to reduce the number of people becoming citizens. Uh, so what is the nominal justification for this, Emily? The nominal justification is that um, the country will be better off with legal immigrants who can immediately contribute economically and support themselves um, and that we don't want them to be any kind of a drain on the public purse. Um, so I <laughs> – I mean, look, there is 
a conversation to be had about the composition of, um, you know, the immigration pool and whether we should have more highly skilled workers versus people who come for other reasons. I feel like that's a rational conversation and people have different opinions. But the notion that we should drastically reduce the number of immigrants in the country if they want to use any kind of social services, need any kind of temporary um, help, it just seems so self-destructive and also cruel. Um, And, you know, that's like the sort of Stephen Miller way, because the ultimate goal is just to scare people and make the country seem like it is no longer welcoming to immigrants. And so I guess if that's your goal, it's um, it all looks good. But in terms of, you know, the economic well-being of the country, America's image as a beacon to people, all the things that have made us so incredibly successful when we welcome immigrants, this just seems utterly wrongheaded. It's just wrong every possible way something can be wrong. I mean, first of all, it's absurd to think that someone could come to this country. They come without a social network. They come without financial resources. They become without speaking the language generally. And we're saying you can come and you can be an immigrant. It's absolutely absurd to think someone could come and then not use any of the services that are provided to you as a as a resident of the country. And to, to the, I was talking, I had a, a Lyft driver this week who had just immigrated from Iran. Amazing. You could get in. He got in four months ago from Iran. Wow. Who knew that we, it was like, he won the green card lottery guy working like, you know, 22 hours a day, got a kid, wife and kid get, you get nothing when you come in, no, no support at all. And it's ridiculous. Like if we're going to take in immigrants, you have to give them a social network and a social safety net. And it's, I just knocked, I'm so agitated. I just knocked my drink down. It makes me ill to think that, that we're punishing people for doing the things which allow them to become productive citizens. If you, you put your child in a state-funded preschool so that you can then go to work and so that you can then become a productive citizen, you can take English language classes, you, it, it's, it, it's, I'm driven to rage and I'm in, in incoherent rage by this. Ben, relieve me here. Yeah, so I, I agree with everything both of you just said. But and I, uh, no, no, the there's not but and, <laughs> and I and I want to add to it that this is wholly true to the essence of who Donald Trump is, and there is, uh, you know, if there is a core, a philosophical core to who he has been as a public figure in politics, it is hatred of foreigners, and you know he doesn't want. Except Im- the ones he marries. It doesn't, he doesn't want them to immigrate. He doesn't want to trade with them. He doesn't want uh, to honor alliances with them. Uh, he believes that people abroad are scamming the United States. That's the sort of core of who he is politically. And so I, you know, this kind of horrifying policy where people you have allowed to come here legally, who you have encouraged to integrate into the country, uh, and who we have always regarded as people who are we are kind of grooming for citizenship. Now you say no to the extent that you've taken a dollar in any kind of uh, public program. You are, you know, a, a ward of. You're likely to become a ward of the state, basically, and therefore we don't want you because you're a resource suck. Is you know horrifying as it is, it's very true to who he is. And another thing that is core to his being, I would say, is being Im- impervious to evidence. Right. So we know that you know 
net immigrants contribute more um, over the, you know, not even the long term, just the medium term. Um, and so the notion of this drain when, in fact, um, as a group, they uh, are productive and do you know, pay back um, whatever initial help they need. It just, you know, that it's like it doesn't matter. It's like the discussion about immigrants and crime. It, you know, we can all say until we're blue in the face that immigrants are less likely to commit crime than native-born Americans, but they're still all the fear-mongering that, um, you know, is Trump's way of basically like playing the Nixon dog whistle race card. It's not even a dog whistle anymore. They, it's not even that okay. Just from a, from okay, from a from a an evidence point of view, these people who are immigrants use these services at a lower rate generally than native-born Americans. They commit crime at a lower rate than uh, native-born Americans, and we all we know that economically, in the very, they are more productive than native-born Americans. And they, we just need to look at any corporate board, any job-creating company, and see how much immigrants have contributed to this country. It's also the fact that these are the best Americans, the people who come here and they want to become citizens, they want to join us. They're the best Americans. They they understand what this country is and what it can be and what a reprieve it is from terrible, terrible places they may have come from, poorer places they may have come from, places where there are fewer opportunities. And the idea that we that we demonize them, that we criticize them, that we, we bar them for having taken a, a dollar in Medicaid money is it's just morally revolting, and it's also or having sent their kids to preschool. Having sent their kids to preschool, if if which if they didn't do, we would complain that their kids didn't speak English well enough, right? Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's oh, it is it it is among the worst, and and it puts to lie the whole thing that the Republicans have been saying over the past few years. It's not about immigration. We, we're a nation of immigrants. It's just about illegal immigrants who are cheating the system and who are coming here and taking jobs from from people who are here illegally. Of course, we want more legal immigrants. This puts the lie to the to the idea that the Trump administration actually ever believed that. It's it's they they don't like as Ben just said, as you just said, they don't like. Foreigners, even though these aren't foreigners, these are people who are trying to be Americans. They are seeking to be Americans. So I do think there's one bright side of this that is worth noting, uh, or I did silver uh, silver lining to dark cloud, which is that it is an executive action, at least as the stories are describing it. And uh, you know, he does not seem to be preparing a legislative proposal for Congress on this. It seems like a rulemaking, uh, and uh, that means it. Uh, will have as exactly as much shelf life as the next president wants it to have. And I think it's, a, you know, it's an important element here that, you know, he's not willing to go to Congress and say, please pass something like this, because actually the Congress of the United States would never pass something like this. So it's something he's going to go out on a limb and do himself. And the moment we have a president whose core being is not disliking people who are not from the United States originally, uh, it will uh, presumably disappear. Well, but um, I want to go back to a point that you were making, Emily, which is at the, the heart of what what Miller is trying to do and what Trump seems to be trying to do is, is just to tell people you're going to be miserable here. We're going to make life awful for you. It's you go to Frank Forer's wonderful piece about demoralizing piece about ice and the Atlantic this week and about how that has become a force designed to just make people miserable. Um, and the war on asylum that's going on right now, it doesn't even have to be 
It doesn't have to to last forever. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't. This policy doesn't even have to be carried out for it to fulfill the aims that Mueller, that Miller and Miller and Trump have, which is to make people scared of coming here and and apprehensive about coming here and and thus reduce the number of people who try to get here, the reduce the number of people who ever try apply for citizenship, right? Right. And I I also thought Frank's piece was great. And one thing that jumped out at me was his um, mention of the idea that the sort of real person running the Department of Homeland Security through a close aide is Jeff Sessions. And, you know, this goes back to reporting I did, I think, more than a year ago now. Jeff Sessions is incredibly um, uncharitable views of immigrants, his desire to cut back on legal immigration, to make it you know, as miserable as possible for people who come into the country without papers. That used to be a fringe view in the Republican Party when Jeff Sessions you know, tried to introduce a bill to limit legal immigration a few years ago. On the co- Senate committee he was on, he was the only person who voted for it. And now this is you know, running the, the executive branch, these policies. Hey, GapFest listeners, I am interrupting our show this week because it's time for the Slate Plus Pledge Drive. I'm here with the editorial director of Slate Plus, Gabriel Roth. Gabe, what do listeners get when they sign up for Slate Plus? Well, David, thank you for asking. Um, first off, the listeners here are the political GabFest fans. Best fans in the world. Best fans we've got. What they get is every week their episode of the political GabFest once they join Slate Plus. Number one, it has no ads. It just goes from beginning to end, pure content. But number two, it runs longer. At the end of every episode of the Political Gab Fest, you guys continue talking for maybe 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes, sometimes up to 20 minutes of continued gab. There was one a couple weeks ago where there were two bonus segments. First, you talked about Alan Dershowitz on Martha's Vineyard getting disinvited from parties. Then you you included the tape that you had recorded, the segment you had recorded about Scott Pruitt that you had recorded before he got fired. So there was this long, thorough, pure GabFest content discussion of, of ethics problems amongst the Trump administration and why Scott Pruitt is exemplary but is maybe not the worst of the Trump administration people. You pointed to Wilbur Ross as more corrupt than Scott Pruitt and Plus members got to hear that and regular GabFest listeners did not get to hear that. Some of these segments that you guys have been doing, I've noticed they that you can get into some more personal stuff because it's a slightly more, if you'll excuse the phrase, intimate space. Uh, there was one where Emily talked about the response to her New York Times article about white people beginning to recognize their whiteness where she got just some unbelievably vitriolic bullshit coming at her on on social media. And and she talks about this aspect of what it's like now to write things for, for big publication, things that are a little bit controversial, where you now expect that you're going to be bombarded with, in her case, anti-Semitic like propaganda and hate memes and, and how that made her feel and how she responded to it. And, and John talked a little bit about his own experience with that kind of thing. This is stuff about the experience of doing the kind of work that you you guys do that uh, is very, I think, salient to the conversations that you have and that only Slate Plus members get to hear those sorts of conversations. Yeah. I mean, I'm a Slate Plus member. I would hope so. For many reasons. But one of my favorite reasons is because I love those bonus segments on not just the GabFest. I do the one on the GabFest, so I don't need to listen to it. But listening to it on Hang Up and Listen or listening to it, you've just started adding them to the Slate Money podcast, which I love when they they get very wonky in theirs. And then particularly on the Culture Fest, on the Culture Gap Fest, they do great 
Slate Plus segments, which are essential to my listening pleasure on that show. I think all of the shows ha- are sort of figuring out a different voice that they can use, a slightly different register that they can use for the plus segment where the audience is the smaller, more devoted, the kind of concentrated super fan audience that wants to hear something that's maybe a bit more personal and maybe a little wackier, maybe a little wonkier in the case of Slate Money. But they're always it's always a really interesting sort of fillip on, uh, on the end of one of these shows. In addition to these bonus segments, uh, there are complete series that we do that are only for Slate Plus members. The Slate Academies series, the ones with Jamel Bowie about the history of slavery in America and about the failure of Reconstruction in America. I learned so much from those series about these issues that most of us probably didn't get a very thorough education in these just crucial aspects of American history. Um, we did those just for Slate Plus members. We did another on great books with our book critic, Laura Miller. John Dickerson talked to her about the brothers Karamazov. This was in December of, of 2016, so right after the election. And you can hear both of them responding both to this sort of titanic work of literature, but also to the circumstances in which they're reading it. And it's just a really interesting conversation. That's only for Slate Plus members as well. There's a ton more that Slate Plus members get. But besides that, the other really important reason for people to sign up is to support this show and to support all the other work that people do, don't you think? I do. And I think one thing that's become really important in a very contentious age is the value of independent Journalism and independent journalism does not pay for itself. It has many sources of support. Slate obviously has advertising that helps support it and has other forms of revenue, live shows. But the Slate Plus membership is one of the really critical ways that people who who rely on Slate for for their news, for their analysis, for context, for pleasure can ensure that Slate keeps doing the great work that it does to ensure that Slate can keep making the GabFest, that Slate can keep having Trumpcast and Dahlia doing amicus and or amicus. I've never been sure how to pronounce it. She I, pronounced it one way. I pronounce it the other way. Whatever. Fair enough. To have to have Pesca on the gist to do Slow Burn, which is a magnificent podcast, to do all these shows that have the the smart opinion and analysis that you expect from Slate. It's it's a way that you can support that and that we can continue to afford to keep doing it. Of course, it's not just podcasts. It's the wonderful work that appears in in the magazine online every day with writers like Jamel Bowie, with Dahlia, with Mark Joseph Stern, with Dear Prudence, of course. You get the biggest stories. You get the smartest coverage. And it is independent. It's nonpartisan. It's aggressive. It's so smart. And, and you, as a listener and a reader, get all this value out of it, I hope. And Slate Plus is an opportunity for you to support what we're doing, and we hope you'll consider it. That's right. Um, I'll let you guys get back to your show now. If you uh, were annoyed by this Pledge Drive segment, join Slate Plus. You'll never have to hear one again. Uh, If you were inspired by this Pledge Drive segment, join Slate Plus, and you will have the option of listening to it again if you would like. You can sign up at slate.com slash gabfestplus. That URL again, slate.com slash gabfestplus. Thanks, David. Thank you, GabFest listeners. Hope to see you in Slate Plus soon. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. 
Apple and then Spotify, Facebook, and YouTube banned large swaths of the Alex Jones InfoWars empire this week. Jones responded by tweeting on Twitter, a, a platform where he's still allowed to be, the war on your mind is happening right now. Uh, so he's still on Twitter. He's His app in the Apple App Store is still available and is um, rising the Apple charts very quickly. And conservatives are seething about this ban. Why Jones? Why not? Why not other people? Why hasn't Louis Farrakhan been bounced off of YouTube? Uh, why has he been singled out? And of course, Jones is a distinctly, singularly, maybe not singularly, but a distinctly poisonous character. He is not like most offensive people out there. He is trafficked in the most disgusting kind of conspiracy theories. Obviously, the part about there being crisis actors at Parkland, 9-11 inside jobism, and and the idea that Newtown was fake being Newtown one being the most vile one, which has caused absolute misery for the families of children murdered at Newtown. Um, when he's challenged, Jones sort of falls back on the idea that what he's doing is just entertainment and opinion. And at the same time, however, he happily takes the influence he's gotten within, within right-wing politics when he is allowed to take that influence. So I find myself dumbfounded by this. Um, Jones is evil. I hope he loses every defamation suit. I hope he, you know, his his fortune is drained by having to pay legal bills and pay pay uh, pay damages to families he's wronged. But I just don't know that that what's going on. Here, it's it's I'm confounded, and I would like to dig into these issues. Is it right, Ben, for Apple, Facebook, Spotify, YouTube to? bar Alex Jones or to limit his use of their platform. So I think it's great. Go ahead, Ben. And I think uh, the hand-wringing about it uh, among uh, people who believe in free speech, which I do too, is uh, uh, misplaced. I had no problem when uh, the company that, 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 that provides uh, anti-DDoS protection to most sites on the web um, Cloudflare uh, denied protection to Stormfront, and people wrung their hands about that. And, you know, one thing that is not a protected class in this country is being a loathsome, disgusting person. And if Apple doesn't want to do business with Alex Jones, it's not because he's black. It's not because he's Jewish. It's not because he's Muslim, right? These are categories that you say, we have public accommodations law. You're not allowed to discriminate against people on that basis. You are allowed to discriminate against people because they suck. And Alex Jones sucks. And by the way, if YouTube wants to get rid of Louis Farrakhan's hate-filled stuff, fine. I don't think that's a deep free speech issue. And I know people say these companies are like public utilities, but guess what? They're not. And if we want to define them as public utilities in the law and say they have common carry obligations, let's have that policy debate. But you know what? I'll oppose it because I actually want big companies to be able to say, we don't want to do business with you because you really, really suck. And that's how I feel about Alex Jones. Right. So I was going to raise a similar point, but ask it as a question. 
do we think at this point that Facebook, YouTube, Apple, et cetera, are they the street? Like, are they the public square? Or are they like the mall or the movie theater, places where um, there is a private entity in charge that can make its rules about what people get to shout? And the other thing about, you know, these distributors is are they actually like sources of news? Are they news agencies um, in a way that should make them responsible for content, right? I mean, when you have open comments threads online, um, I don't even know if Slate does that anymore. But when they exist, they get monitored. Um, The New York Times does not let people, um, you know, put up like all the untrue garbage that they want to put up on the New York Times website. And Facebook in particular, but all of these sites have been unwilling to assume any of the responsibility of their editorial function. They're like running as far as they can from it. But the problem with that is that like they do exist as these editorial news conveying platforms. And I um was really struck this morning by a piece that Max Fisher wrote in the New York Times in which he pointed out that this debate about Alex Jones may seem, I guess, new in the United States, but that Facebook has been facing this problem or countries like Sri Lanka and India have faced this problem through Facebook because, you know, false inciting a violence post go viral and people die. And Facebook has been completely unwilling to do anything proactive, really unwilling even to meet with people in these countries to hear about what's going on in this way that just seems so appallingly irresponsible. And I, there is this mentality in Silicon Valley I find so incredibly irksome isn't even it's it's so destructive to imagine that like we think we're making the world better and so that's what's happening and we are just going to effectively you know shut our eyes and ears as long as we can to all the negative scary ramifications that we've unleashed with this new tool of communication that people don't even really fully understand yet so anyway i recommend reading max's piece on this i thought it was really and, perceptive and also i mean i would point out like that facebook and youtube uh they're, they certainly, yes, they deny their publishers when it's very convenient for them, and they they deny their acting in editorial capacity. I know this isn't exactly analogous, but do you see child pornography on Facebook? You know that people right. want to put it up there. It's not up there. Do you see copyright violation videos on YouTube? No, no because they get pulled down instantly because Facebook has just, I mean, YouTube has decided through Google, like, we're 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 not we're not going to deal with it. We're not going to take any publishing responsibility, or we're going to take the publishing responsibility of pulling it down. So I've actually spent a fair bit of time uh, with social media companies on a related set of issues. Um, Jihadists. Uh, actually, no, actually. Uh, it's a, a weird area called sextortion, which uh, is a kind of a form of extortion that takes place uh, for uh, basically you're, you're forcing people by threatening to release stuff about them into producing pornography for mm-hmm. you. Like blackmailing uh, them in that way. It, Exactly. And prosecutors colloquially call it sextortion. And, Wait, the uh, pup pornography exists and they're threatening to release it? Or sometimes, no? sometimes you hack their accounts and, and you find their nude pictures of them. And then you say, if you don't masturbate for me in, with a camera, uh, I'll release these to your church, right? Uh-huh. It's a very widespread problem. It's lo- pretty understudied. And a few couple years ago, I did a large study of it for, for Brookings. And um, 
the social media companies uh, were quite varied in how they responded to it, but uh, some of them are were excellent and have done a lot of real work on this. And you know, nobody says about uh, DMCA violations, the copyright stuff or the child pornography stuff. You know, oh, you know, there's a. Um, it, it's really disturbing when 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 companies enforce their terms of service and um, and the fact that uh, you know I, I that what Alex Jones is doing is not criminal does not mean there's some moral or legal obligation to carry it and you know I I understand that people delude themselves, including, by the way, Mark Zuckerberg, who seems to feel that he has some deep obligation to uh, to Holocaust denial. <laughs> that um, was so wacky. Like people Ugh. delude themselves into thinking that this is the new public square, but it's not. It's a private corporation. It's a private convening. Right. It's just really okay. large. Okay. Uh, I totally, uh, you guys have completely persuaded me but let's go back to an Emily. Well, I don't think you should cave that. Wait. I feel like you have some more cards to play. Well, Maybe you're about well, to no, play. Well, no, no. I'm not. I don't actually have a dog in this fight. I'm really confused and I wanted to be persuaded. And Ben has been very persuasive, as he often is. But I want to go back to the, uh, the this notion. I, I think it's clear, of course, that, the, that Google and Facebook and Spotify and Apple have the legal right to take Jones down, not let him publish on their platforms. It's it's not a this is not a First Amendment issue. It's he doesn't have free speech claims. He doesn't get to use their platforms. But don't you think that, especially in the case of Facebook and Google, these companies have gotten so much benefit over the years out of allowing outrageous and offensive people to use their platform that they that it's 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 good that they're coming late to this and and getting rid of Jones. But there are so many other opportunities earlier on to have limited the ability of people to take these platforms and exploit them and use them to to spread lies to spread nastiness and they haven't they haven't done it in the 100 chances they've had over the past decade because they've been so happy to harvest the ad revenue and harvest the user growth. Oh, absolutely. And, and they were drinking their own Kool-Aid. I mean, that's completely true. I have a question, though. So Apple and maybe some of the others, but I noticed it with Apple said, you know, we don't tolerate hate speech. That's a broad category. They didn't actually have to say that in order to get rid of Alex Jones. They could have said this is, you know, defamation and libel and we're getting rid of him for that narrower way. Um, and I just the hate speech um, category is a much bigger one. And I just now wonder, like, OK, I mean, it's it, Alex Jones is such an easily identifiable purveyor of hate speech and he's so odious. I mean, his attack on the Sandy Hook families just makes me weep and has really harmed them. Um, but w there's a lot of hate speech on all of these platforms. I mean, a lot of it. And like what? What about all of that? What how does how does that what's the next stage of this? And is that something, David, that does worry you? Because then you are talking about companies making their own subjective decisions about what kind of speech counts as hate speech. You know, there's talk this one of the companies talked about dehumanizing language as a reason to um censor speech. Anyway, it it does start to have a little bit of slippery slope here. I, I have a I have a proposed test for you, Emily. Okay. Let's see if you buy it. Here's here's my test. The day Apple takes down from Facebook, uh, fr from from its podcasting network, its transmission network, somebody who 
one of the three of us has any anxiety about that person's voice not being promoted uh, in the iTunes store anymore. Uh, let's talk about that. <laughs> Do you think we're the ultimate purveyors of judgment and taste here? No, I, I just mean like if right, the, like that like, hasn't happened like, yet. Drawing the line is extremely difficult. That there is a line somewhere and that Alex Jones is way over right, it to right. the point that a reasonable company could say, we don't want to, we don't want to purvey this guy's stuff. I'm just really comfortable with that. So actually I want to go back to your Daily Stormer piece because I didn't I didn't know that Cloudflare had done that and that was interesting. Do you think that it is the case that that the companies that provide services, I don't think Cloudflare, Cloudflare in no sense is a publisher. Cloudflare is a that's that's not what they do. They're they're a networking company. Do they have no obligation to basically provide service to people who so want to use their service? This incident, like, this incident was a while ago. It was, I think it was right after Charlottesville, yeah. and I may be misremembering the details of it. So if I get something wrong, uh, forgive me. But my my recollection is that they uh, ceased to do business uh, with uh, Daily Stormer, and the uh, and their executives expressed discomfort with being in the position of whether uh, a company should be able to have basically common carriage access. And they asked sort of for, they said it was a difficult issue and they wanted a public conversation about it. And there were a few days where everybody was kind of wringing hands about it and then it disappeared. Um, my view is if you're a plumber and uh, Richard Spencer calls you up and says, I've got a leak in my house. It is perfectly appropriate for you to say, I'm sorry you have a leak in your house, sir, but I don't do business with Nazis. And I don't see why Cloudflare is differently situated. And I don't have a problem with them being in that situation. And if it is not cost effective as a Nazi to start your own DDoS protection company, I I'm sorry. That's just not my problem. Right. And you're saying as long as it's not a protected class, as long as it, it, that that it's not someone who is over 65 or an African-American or if someone we who's, want who's as, do, you know, they're a synagogue seeking to do it. If we want as a society to say we have decided that political viewpoint should be a protected class and you should have access to any public accommodation you want, any business you want, just whatever your political viewpoint so that – you know, people who are offended by Louis Farrakhan have to do business with Louis Farrakhan. We want to make that decision as a society. That's a complicated policy question and it's a complicated moral question. It's maybe a debate worth having. I believe that people should generally have the ability to choose who they want to do business with, with certain limited exceptions based on classes of people who there is a propensity to discriminate against unreasonably and unfairly. And I don't have a problem. I don't want to do business with Nazis. And I can't imagine why the state should force me to. And if I owned Cloudflare, I would feel the same way. Emily, last question for you, which is given that, that Facebook, Google, Spotify, Apple have been so late to this and they're, you know, they're not actually as Ben points out, Alex Jones is probably on the far side of any line they would draw, but Alex Jones seems to be really the only person so far affected by this. Should we do, should we wish for a whole wave of Alex Jones type bannings? 
Hmm. That's an interesting. And should we wish should we wish these companies just to be way more active? Because they, they have behaved more or less like common carriers. If they sought the benefit of common carrierdom, they've wanted to be as expansive as possible, as available to as many people as possible, as as evangelical with their services as possible. Um and to deny their responsibility as publishers so as a common carrier. Yeah, I would and now like they're to, now they're saying I would like them no. to stop denying their responsibility as publishers for sure. And then I think there is a more interesting nuanced conversation to be had about which of the levers they pull, right? So there's like the outright ban and, you know, erasing your history. That's like in, you know, that's a relatively big punishment in this land of um social media platforms. But there are other things they can do. They can just like not surface something highly in the algorithm when, you know, it becomes clear from the feedback they're getting that it's made up or defamatory or filled with hate speech garbage. Like there there are various levels of intervention here. And yes, I would like them to take more responsibility, look for what's going viral, look for what seems to be infecting the conversation with um, things that are false or um, you know, really fall to like a basement level of discourse because I think what's what we're still fumbling for in this conversation is whether our marketplace of ideas um, concept of the First Amendment, which is like more speech is always better, the truth will out, the best ideas will triumph. I'm not sure that that is true in the environment of social media. Um, the way posts can go viral, the way people can start to doubt everything, and I think these companies have changed communication in a way that they and we are still in the dark about. So I would like them to be doing a lot more thinking and a lot more putting money into figuring out where the harm is and how they can try to prevent it. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are sitting in the Bazelon attic, contemplating, looking out over the Bazelon street, tumbler in your hand, Emily, chatting with people who are in your attic with you. I don't know who would be like, I'm not sure. Who that would be. <laughs> my probably, attic is really probably Mr. Right Bazelon. I don't want to be in my probably attic. Mr. Right Bazelon. You're having a cool drink in the attic, a frozen margarita. What are you going to be chatting um, about? Well, uh, you know, I'm writing this book right now about prosecutors and criminal justice reform. So I'm sort of obsessed with the topic and something um, exciting happened in that world this week in the election results on Tuesday. Um, the longtime incumbent in St. Louis County, who was um, the prosecutor uh, who, um, um, did not indict anyone after Michael Brown's killing in Ferguson and also has let a lot of other related injustices go on and on in Ferguson. He lost his seat after 27 years to um, someone promising reform um, named Wesley Bell, who had been elected to the city council in Ferguson after um, the protests there. And this is just a really, like, amazing unseating of a long time you know, law and order, not reformer um, prosecutor by someone who seems to have an entirely different agenda. And I'm just will be fascinating to see what kind of a difference it makes for the people who live in St. Louis County. Ben, what is your chatter? So I've been thinking about uh, special prosecutor reports and specifically reports to Congress. Are uh, you guys both going to chatter about prosecutors? That That is... That's like ridiculous. No, no, but okay, I'm, fine. I'm, Go ahead. I'm gonna. Go ahead. I'm gonna be. Uh, I'm gonna chatter about. Uh, I, I told you, I'm gonna get in touch with my inner John Dickerson and and chatter about presidential history. Um, 
you know, when we talk about special counsel reports we to Congress, we think about um, Bob Mueller's allegedly writing one. And of course, there's the famous Starr report. But the proto example of this is a report that uh, Leon Jaworski wrote, uh, which is colloquially known as the roadmap. Um, and it was sent to the House Judiciary Committee about the impeachment of Richard Nixon. And this was actually the document that was the basis when Congress wrote the independent counsel law for the provision in law under which Ken Starr wrote the Starr report. And here's, you've probably never heard of the roadmap. And the reason is that it has never become public. Uh, and it remains under seal to this day. And I've been thinking about it because with Bob Mueller thinking about writing a report, I have this belief that he is going to write a report that is much more like the Jaworski roadmap than the kind of florid, uh, descriptive star report. So the Jaworski roadmap was, uh, has never become public, but it was described both in Jaworski's memoir and in an amazing memoir by Jaworski's flack, a guy named Jim Doyle. And they describe it as this very spare document that does essentially no analysis uh, and so I have been uh, intrigued by this document for the last uh, 20 years and sort of particularly interested in it uh, in the last few months as more and more press has been reporting that Mueller may be writing a report for Congress on obstruction. Well, so why is it still under seal and how can we get it out of seal? So that is interesting question. It is a uh, document that contains a lot of grand jury information. And grand jury reports are presumptively sealed in perpetuity. Uh, and so it is sitting at the National Archive. They cannot throw it out because it has historical value, but nobody can see it. Um, and there who, are, who can you appeal to, to, to break the seal, the, so the chief judge of some court? We have been researching that um, and uh, stay tuned on that. What would the court be? What court was it? In? Uh, it was uh, approved to send to Congress by Judge Sirica, the, the, who presided over the Watergate grand jury. And it was done, by the way, for those who say what's the statutory or the uh, regulatory basis for Mueller to issue a report. And people say, well, you know, it's a complicated question. There was no regulatory justification or authorization for this. It was just something Jaworski did with the approval of the court. Amazing. My chatter is uh, LeBron James. I did not think I could like LeBron James more than I already do. I couldn't admire and respect him more than I already do. I mean, he is a he's a not only a great basketball player, he's not only a you know wonderful actor, not only a a philanthropist of extraordinary generosity and a sort of very passionate and interesting and subtle thinker about the philanthropy that he does, in particular, the school that he's just started in Akron. Um, but uh, he's also a biker. I just learned this. And there's a really nice interview with him in the Wall Street Journal by Jason Gay uh, about his love of bicycles. And uh, those must be really big bicycles. Yeah. Well, he, he, uh, he used to bike to heat games when he played in Miami. I mean, it's hard for him to bike a lot of places because he's, he's um, you know, he's a very public person. and People notice him and it becomes difficult for him. But he has given every child who's going to be at his new school that he started, the new public school in Akron that he's, that he's funding, a bicycle. And he, the reason is that when he was a child, the bicycle for him was freedom. And there's just these really great quotes from him about what 
the bike meant to him when he was a kid in 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 Akron. And so he said, the bicycle for me was the only way to get around the city. If I wanted to meet some of my friends, travel across the city, go to school, play basketball, anything, the bicycle was the way I got around. Me and my friends, when we got on our bikes, we would just ride. Sometimes we would even get lost because we'd be gone for so long. But there was a sense of joy and comfort. There was nothing that could really stop us. We felt like we were on top of the world. And I love that sentiment. And I love the idea that he wandered and was free in a way that children often can't be because they're uh, you know, when they're lucky, I suppose they're constrained by their parents driving them everywhere. But and then in in James's case, and he was he grew up, I think, rel- in relative poverty. Uh, he probably didn't have as many ways to get around. And uh, it's you know, I I'm a, as a biker, I am so thrilled that LeBron is a is one of us. And listeners, of course, you guys have been sending us amazing chatters week after week. Um, it's so exciting to get your listener chatters. Uh, you are sending us great articles and works of culture that you love and historical episodes that you find fascinating. And you're tweeting tweeting those to us at Slate Gabfest. I want to urge you to keep doing it. And again, this week, we had a, just too many good ones to choose from. And so apologies to all of those I can't mention because there, there were really 10 great ones that we could have done as chatters. But I do want to mention the one that Chris Arnold sent us. And Chris sent us a piece uh, from the Washington Post, and it's about the value of infrastructure in the long term. And he points it to this piece in the Post, which is about a study done by some Danish economists who looked at economic activity in Europe and North Africa, and modern economic activity in Europe and North Africa, and then mapped that economic activity to the roots of Roman roads. And what's incredible is that 2,000 years later, where the Roman roads were, particularly where they where they intersected each other, those are hubs of economic activity still. The, those, the, the, partly it's because the roads themselves, well, some of, the, some of it is that the roads themselves were in places where you would naturally have trade. But actually, that doesn't seem to be the main reason. The main reason is that these roads were really good. They lasted for a really long time. They made transportation and trade much cheaper. And that advantage persisted even to this age. And it's extraordinary. Roman roads are the most awesome thing in the world, but there is a dark side to them. The Romans built. They this, all went to Rome. This, that was the problem. This incredible network of roads uh, leading into the heartland of the country, which they used to project power outwards, military trade, and in 416 AD, I believe, uh, uh, Alaric the uh, First, the uh, Goth uh, chieftain, marched down the. Uh, Roman roads as though they were his own and sacked Rome. Yeah, well, that's fine. That happens. Yeah. It's like, it's it's basically a metaphor for the internet. Yes. Uh, we built it. We project all this power. The Russians come in, use it as our own to hack our presidential election. We were sacked. Oh, my God. We've already been sacked. <laughs> Hacked. Hacked and sacked. That's our show for today. The Political Gap Fest is produced today by Daniel Hewitt and Jason DeLeon. Our researcher is Izzy Rode. Remember, if you would like to succeed Izzy as our researcher, please send us a resume and cover letter to gabfest at slate.com. You should follow us on Twitter at, at slategabfest for Emily Bazelon and the wonderful Ben Wittes. I can't believe we haven't had you, Ben. It's ridiculous. The Ben Wittes of Lawfare. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will be back with you next week. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> <laughs> 